one of the things that I found is the reflection of these definitions of business storytelling, which which is very, uh, very dependent on the things that you can absolutely predict, and also has a tendency to go with the hero story with the, uh, you know, uh, you you encounter an obstacle and and you mm-hmm. you kill the dragon. Mm-hmm. Well, in a feminine narrative, uh, the dragon has something to teach you. Welcome to the Storycraft Podcast for Storytellers. I'm your host, Meg Adams, and I'm here to help you explore how stories shape our connections. Wondering how stories help you network in advance? Looking to bridge online and face-to-face worlds, foster understanding, and ignite innovation? Look no further. Whether you're a leader, communicator, educator, or just love a good story, join us for actionable insights and real talk with professional storytellers, all aimed at helping you build stronger, better connections. In this conversation, I spoke with Annette Simmons. I'm going to give you a little bit of background on Annette so you can understand the context of our conversation because we hopped right into it in this conversation and it was a great one. Partially because Annette is an author, a storyteller. She has been for decades. Her most popular book is called The Story Factor, Inspiration, Influence, and Persuasion Through the Art of Storytelling. Came out in the year 2000. CEO Reed named it twice as one of the 100 best business books of all time. And it's now available in a third edition. But all five of her business books define and promote power with strategies and principles, even though and in some cases specifically because they undermine autocratic power over strategies. While she didn't mention gender in the early days, Annette sees a correlation between reinforcing feminine narratives and finding sustainable solutions to long-term global problems, something I was very excited to talk to her about and learn from her in our conversation. Her most recent book delves into this topic even more. It's called Drinking from a Different Well, How Women's Stories Change What Power Means in Action. And that book challenges traditional assumptions about what power is, what it is for, and who should have it. It was a wonderful conversation. I know you're going to love it. So here we go. Yeah. <laughs> We're recording. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And that, so like leading into my first question, which I feel like you're going to know, is um, what role do you think storytelling has to play right now in our current culture of disconnect? Well, st- storytelling is already playing a role um, in, in creating disconnect. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so when I started studying storytelling, I studied with traditional storytellers and it was the old school, uh, method of community building and, um, and, and collective moral, uh, uh, reflection mm-hmm. now. So that was 1994. Um, what's happened in the last 20 years is storytelling uh, has been exploited as a tool. And so uh, people who want to manipulate and create polarization tell stories that turn paradox into battles. Mm-hmm. So the paradoxes that we live with um, that really can never be resolved, they're, they're simply you know a back and forth. It's, it's not one side wins. So for instance, structure versus freedom. Mm-hmm. is a paradox. Um, you have too much structure and, you know, you don't have creativity, um, but then you have too little structure and you've got chaos, which is where we are right now with the deregulation that's happened over the last 30 years. So, so what's happened is, is that, that they're telling stories where one side wins. 
the traditional stories that I learned from um, actually incorporate paradox. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's this old story about, um, it comes from Africa, about uh, two brothers who lived on either side of a road. And uh, one, one time a stranger came through and uh, later at dinner, they were talking about it. And one brother said, well, he was wearing a red hat. And the other brother said, no, he was wearing a black hat. And they got into such an argument over it that they stopped speaking. Well, the guy had a half red and half black hat. And so they were both right. And so the stories that that I uh, would like to see more of is the stories that communicate that paradox is not something to be resolved like a conflict. It's a contrast. Hmm. And so all the answers are in the middle. Um, and the polarization, now they torpedo people in the middle. Um, and story has been abused, uh, particularly because the feedback mechanism is clicks these days and likes and that that sort of stuff. And so there are, emotions have a certain speed. Mm -hmm. um, love is is a is is a slow grounded uh, tolerance and patience. Disdain and anger is fast. Mm -hmm. And so we have been using this feedback loop that reinforces stories of disdain and anger while uh, we are not taking the time, because it does take time, it takes patience, it takes um, tolerance, to ruminate on just whether this is a conflict or a contrast. And so my goal is is... So I, there are trends in leadership uh, studies that, that, you know, I'm, I'm 62. So I've watched it come and go. Mm -hmm. And you will end up with something that's in fashion. Uh, for instance, servant leadership was in fashion. Systems thinking was in fashion. All of these things were pure gold when they came out mm -hmm. because it was about the substance. And then as people start to monetize it, like they've done with storytelling, um, it's about the image instead of the substance. Mm -hmm. And so my hope is we can get more people interested in the substance uh, of storytelling uh, and not the image. Love what you're hearing on this podcast? Consider booking me to speak at your next event. Dive further into the transformative power of storytelling with my keynote. Tell better stories, speak up, stand out, and build community. In a world that often amplifies our differences, my talk invites you to embrace genuine connections. Break free from the echo chambers and discover the art of storytelling. Learn how to share your own narrative, listen actively, and foster communities that flourish on shared experiences. Check out the show notes to learn more about how to book a talk for your next event. What do you think, you said you've watched this since 1994. You know, obviously we've seen the internet come of age. And I mean, I've seen that in my career as well. What role do you think, especially social media has to play in terms of really, does it drive people away from that substance that you're talking about towards image? Like you mentioned clicks and I like- think, I think social media, when there's real humans behind the story can be a very good thing. Mm -hmm. But when social media is exploited 
with the intent to distribute disinformation. Um, and there are big factories of people who do nothing but that. Then they've sabotaged our our you know ability to create community. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it's like a virus. So so it's it's the manufacturing. Uh, I think there's some other aspects of, of social media with real human beings that can also be problematic. But the big danger, I think, is this this manufactured disinformation. And as you mentioned, that creates those emotional feelings of anger and disdain that travel. And it gets addictive. Yes, absolutely. You know, disdain is is a, an emotion that that. So I wrote the book Territorial Games, mm -hmm. and the thing is, you can be nasty to someone who you decide is your enemy. Hmm. So that's the story that these people are my enemy. And so then the behavior follows. Uh, yeah. Um, and uh, so in the last 20 years, the assumption of negative intent, and I can't remember the study that uh, uh, I, this comes from, between Republicans and Democrats has, has increased um, at least two times as much as it was 20 years ago. That's a big increase. The assumption of negative intent is is behind uh, a lot of this bad behavior. Um, so with territorial games, what I would do is I would talk about the ten games people play, um, and I would I would I would de-escalate hmm. because we all do it. We all have egos, and so well, one of the things you know when I was collecting the stories, I never spoke to one person who said I started it. Of they're course. all like you know yeah. they started it and so as long as you can externalize the demon um then then you get to be self-righteous um mm -hmm. and your behavior starts to deteriorate oh absolutely you know i can think of this in like small instances and like you were saying they can grow very quickly into bigger instances of poor behavior so how do you how does storytelling help us hold space for these differing perspectives how do we get out of that narrative of the, they're the enemy i'm the hero do you have i know you've studied this for a long time so well most of my what i have that's valuable is from experience mm -hmm. so there's a lot of things you can study in books and it's true it's accurate but it's not helpful yeah um and um it's one of my pet peeves is storytelling always has a beginning middle and end it's like what mm -hmm. does it you know, what, what a useless piece of information, at least as, as far as I'm concerned. Um, so ask the question again, I, I got. To yeah, say. no, no, no. Yeah, no, I was, I just, how do we hold space for All right. okay, being in the middle ground for the, okay. the so, so I have two tricks. I have two tricks that I use that work okay. when I'm facilitating. Um, one of the things is people want to hire me to uh, tell the company story. Mm -hmm. You know, we want to get our narrative straight. I refuse to work with anybody um, if we don't start with the who I am, why I'm here story. Mm -hmm. So, so it's to a certain extent is, is, is you have to keep your boundaries. I mean, if you're going to go out there and teach storytelling, in my opinion, then, then you have a, a, a obligation um, to, you know, look at the moral aspects of, of storytelling. And here's what happens is when I get people to tell their who I am, why I'm here story, um, 
they uh, tune in to the best of them. Hmm. And so getting people to tune in to the best, their, you know, better angels yeah. um, is one of the things. And so that, that works because instead of the company story, people actually have to show up. And when they show up, they care what they look like. Um, and that impacts the way they behave. And so after I do the who I am, why I'm here story, um, the whole dynamic of the room changes. Hmm. Um, so, so that's one thing I do. The other thing is, uh, you know, I'm mostly retired. I only take the jobs that I care about. Yeah. Um, and, uh, uh, which is luxury. For I was just going to say, that sounds so lovely. Oh my God. It's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. So uh, I was contacted by a group in Europe, uh, facilitators. Um, and so the, the term psychological safety is mm. up again, mm -hmm. again. Um, and and what's, what's interesting is that it's another one of those gold into lead things. Mm. Um, I think it was Google that had the Aristotle project and, and, and they spent that, well, millions probably on right. investigating what are the core uh, uh, aspects of a high performing team. What's the one thing you can't do without? And so they thought that it would be diversity. They thought it would be IQ. They thought it would be, it was psychological safety. Hmm. And yet, um, while they discovered it was psychological safety, they did not do a very good job operationalizing it. Sure. And, and so, so I, they've contacted me and, and my methods of creating psychological safety uh, include these stories like the red hat, black hat, mm -hmm. um, uh, and definitely paradox. And so I've been working on, on the core paradoxes that really cause polarization and telling stories specifically uh, about that. When you're in... <sighs> I love this idea of talking about psychological safety because I think that I totally agree with you. But I wonder, I'm thinking of all the spaces that I've been in that have been larger organizations with maybe like hundreds of employees. And I don't think I've ever once, to be completely honest in it, felt psychologically safe enough no. to no. tell the stories that probably needed to be told. So, do you, I mean, is that... would you? Do you think that's possible for an organization to operationalize that like, or. Well, it's possible. Definitely. Um, will they do it? I don't know because, okay. So here's, here's another one of my paradigms that I work on the competitive narrative versus a collaborative narrative. Mm, yes. And so a competitive narrative, it is unsafe to share valuable information without making a transaction that you get something in return. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. In a collaborative narrative, we all pool all of our information. So it if an organization is highly dependent on competitive narrative with the theory that it's going to improve performance, it doesn't. Mm -hmm. It it turns genius into gruel. Yeah. And I'm borrowing that phrase from I think. Thomas Friedman. Anyway, it's a great phrase. Um, and, and so one of the things, so my last book was about women's stories. Mm -hmm. 
um, drinking from a different well, how women's stories change what power means in action. And so here I discovered uh, that, that while gender is a continuum, there are considered masculine traits and, and feminine traits. So we'll just, you know, go from there. But mm -hmm. the, the feminine um, would be, you know, nurturing. It's the collaborative narrative. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that I found, frankly, I've been looking at this gender thing ever since I wrote Territorial Games. I just didn't, I just didn't name gender. It was too, yeah, too unsafe. So interesting. It yeah. Was too unsafe. But, but, but we ruin the fun and games of competitive players because some of the things that we do break the rules. Mm -hmm. And so the rules of, of competition are to, uh, you, you know, you, you just have to look at the art of war because that's been operationalized into, you know, business thinking and deception, surprise, um, uh, you know, distraction. All of these are considered fair mm -hmm. in a competitive environment and uh in order to create a collaborative environment um you get a, a the competitive environment wants to dominate and control mm -hmm. um and and the collaborative environment is requires psychological trust uh because because everybody is allowed to be autonomous and contribute um, without being monitored. One of the problems that I think uh, with psychological safety is the extreme monitoring of employees. Mm. Um, and, and when you monitor an employee uh, to the point where, you know, you know when they're on the computer and when they're not, you are expressing distrust. You tell a story to that employee and, and the story that you tell um, is that we don't trust you. And I have one reaction when someone says, I don't trust you. <laughs> and that's like, well, I don't trust you either. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Um, and so I think that, that it's absolutely possible. I hear that Apple, uh, I just read an article the other day, has instigated um, a, a, a lowering of the monitoring um and particularly the dilemma we have with remote work i mean mm -hmm. that's an artifact of whether you're trusted or not that's 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 a good tell um and so they backed off you know trying to get people back in the office um so there are all, all sorts of things that people could do to increase improve their corporate environment i love how you're connecting to like behaviors to storytelling you know sometimes i don't think we i think people associate storytelling i mean i've heard everything as i'm sure you have Annette, from oh that's what i do when i put my kids to bed to like well this is what marketers do in advertisements but to associate storytelling and, and thinking through how your behavior tells an implicit story and how people will react to that is is interesting yeah i I talked to a lawyer um, who said that when he goes into a courtroom, he doesn't know who's in the jury and who's not before he gets there. Right. Mm -hmm. And so there are actually two interests entrances at the, at the courthouse. There's the fast one for the lawyers. And then there's one for all the regular people. Mm -hmm. He stands in the, the regular people line because it tells a story about how he sees himself. 
and you never know who's watching. I always say, you know, always be sure that that uh, you let the other person have the parking place hmm. when there's two of you, because you never know when you walk in. <laughs> Who's, who's going to be interviewing you? <laughs> well, that's such a good, I also really, I love that story and the stories you've told, but I also love the idea of thinking through, and you know, I know you have a background in psychology too, but a lot of the like stories we tell ourselves about who we want to be and how we want to show up. And then sometimes that there's a disconnect between that and how we behave um, or that it can be aligned with how we want to behave. And I think that's a great, you know, little example of, how I want to behave today is as a generous person. So I'm going to give this person the parking spot. And, and, and it, it starts to make a big difference. One of the things that, that I learned as a practitioner is that, that I, so I used to facilitate dialogue um, mm -hmm. where people are at an impasse. They're ready to split the law firm or they're, I worked with military intelligence um, after they found uh, evidence of weapons of mass destruction and wow. gave them the opportunity to have a dialogue about how do we find evidence of something that didn't exist it was it was remarkable but I but, can't imagine yeah yeah it's it's so what I learned is that I have to promise them that it's temporary that we're going to be open and affirming we're going to be um uh you know tolerant and patient just for one day just mm -hmm. for one day um, and, and so I get a lot more buy-in, um, of course, a lot of people still don't trust it. And then they have to, the leader's going to have to role play, um, safety in, mm -hmm. in, in some way, um, not role play, but demonstrate, sorry. Um, and, and what happens is that they have a profound emotional experience hmm. and, uh, they do it again. Sometimes they have a profound emotional experience and they never do it again. Yeah. Um, you can't control for that because you're a facilitator. You go in, you don't know what the environment is. I had two sociopaths um, over 30 years, so that wasn't too bad. Yeah. Um, but because uh, most people that you think are sociopath uh, actually are just screwed up. Mm -hmm. um, and and uh, one of the, aspects of my understanding came from running self-awareness workshops for three years uh where i heard people and, th and when i say self-awareness workshops i'm talking about that intense you know weekend sort of uh, okay yeah thank you for Jesus that context meeting, right uh it's residential um and i heard people i heard hundreds and hundreds of executives tell their stories and so like one of the executives that was just a jerk and I'm sure he got sent to us to be fixed and in, and, you know, maybe day two told the story about when he was seven years old and his brother drowned and his father blamed him. Oh. And so you're like, Oh wow. You know, so, so it increases yeah. the tolerance. Everybody has a story. Sure. So, yes. so for yeah. me, helping people realize that everybody has a story. Mm -hmm. is is one of the steps um and uh and it's the temporary thing that gets them to do the sample the taste test yeah and then ideally they do it more but there's there's I've, I've found no success in saying this is the way you should be all the time 
That's interesting, Annette. I guess I've always lived in, I'm a very optimistic person, I've been told. <laughs> so like hearing you with your wealth of experience, I mean, it's sort of, I under, I, I appreciate you giving that example, but I want to uh, go back a little bit. You were talking about um, feminine narratives and you noted uh, in your bio that you sent to us a correlation between reinforcing feminine narratives and finding sustainable solutions for mm-hmm. some of the global issues that we're facing. Mm-hmm. And I was I was so curious to hear more about that. And I sort of feel like we're dovetailing into that a little bit. Um, how yeah, can we yeah. use that that narrative or that openness toward, of collaboration to, I mean, deal with some of these? I even can think as you were talking, you know, some of the most pressing issues in my life that I think about are how to how how to engage in in hyper competitive environments with a with a feminine narrative with a a more of a collaborative mindset and approach. And well, I don't let's look, at, let's look at Tay Tay <laughs> Taylor Swift. I love Taylor Swift. I, I do too. <laughs> I mean, there are courses on her now. Okay. Yes. I mean, talk about an, a hyper competitive environment and and a collaborative. I mean, you know, uh, she, she she uses generosity as kind mm-hmm. of like her her competitive advantage, if you will. Yes, which is clashing narratives. But I did too when when I first started uh, writing. Um, there were people who, who wrote books, business books, um, that really were just, you know, cards call me. Um, and, and they were doing it for publicity. They didn't give away all their secrets. I gave away all my secrets because I believed that, um, because I know how I want to live. So, I'm not worried about the hyper competitive world. Of course, it's it's more hyper competitive now. I'm not. I'm yeah. not sure. Of course, now they AI has wiped my books, so oh, that's an issue. But anyway, and we should talk about AI too. <laughs> so, um, oh, remind me what I was talking about. We were talking about um feminine narratives. All oh, right. Okay. Yeah. So Tay Tay. So um, yes. she she gave a hundred thousand dollar bonuses, um, to all of, you know, her road crew. Um, that's ridiculous in a competitive frame, but there's evidence and we can't deny it that she has created a whole new way of doing business in the music business. Mm -hmm. Um, so for instance, one of the things she did is, is, um, she re-recorded all of her yeah, music. Mm-hmm. So so in a way, boundaries, you know, uh, be, I am generous. I believe in second chances. Um, as a matter of fact, I think that if you do a second chance right, you can get a positive response almost 50% of the time. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so, you know, that's one of the things. Um, a lot of people... Uh, try something it doesn't work and then they toss it in the trash can behavioral uh interventions like stories storytelling (laughs) works about 50 to 70 percent of the time and when you try to make it perfect then um uh you destroy it so so one of the aspects of feminine narratives 
includes these second chances. It includes multiple uh, ratios. Uh, FAIR has, has seven different definitions. So if you want to increase trust in a room, um, one of the things that I do is I just, I just talk about the different definitions of FAIR. You know, whoever needs it gets the most, whoever, whoever brought the bacon in gets the most, whoever works the hardest gets the most, whoever got there first gets the most. And, and it, it takes people off their ladders of inference. Mm -hmm. And and I think I coined this term, it reambiguates <laughs> clarity. Yeah. And so one of the things that that is feminine narratives do is they we trade understanding, we trade clarity for understanding. Because not everything's clear. Right. The second thing is that that feminine narratives have a much bigger circle of moral concern. Mm -hmm. So in a, a competitive environment, you're, it's only your team you care about. So that inevitably is going to create lots of losers. I love um, that. Huh? I mean, I really enjoyed the, I love the way that you are clarifying these distinctions. <laughs> you know, without apology. Well, well, you know, one of the reasons why I stopped taking gigs uh, that I don't like um, is that I could feel them trying to change my methodologies. Mm. And and the first thing I did was was I started doing disclaimers. Um, I I would say you know what I don't what I won't do mm -hmm. right up front so that I can move on quickly. Right. Away from a hyper competitive, you know, um, right. I'm not going to get eaten alive. Right. Um, and so I think that's part of it. Um, it's, it's particularly when, when I think about my own feminine narratives, um, yeah, boundaries are, are really, really important. Uh, and, and so the women, so when we promote collaborative narratives, we have to be equally tolerant and patient. And when someone is, is committed to being abusive, cut them off. Yeah. So I give second chances. You know, even, even the worst asshole I'm going to give a second chance to. Mm -hmm. um, but, but after a while, um, I don't have that kind of time. I, I also very much appreciate that advice. <laughs> I think it's well taken. Well, well, it took me years to learn it. I, I, anybody I can help that's still in the middle of it, I'm, I'm quite happy to. No, I, and I really appreciate that. We hear a lot of talk about boundaries, but, you know, I think that, yeah, that's absolutely important when you think about your work and you know, when you are trying, you know, to... I think a lot of people are hitting this and I think that that's true too. It's I've heard it said, you know, the other way is like, don't enter an argument with someone who's not even willing to come. Like if they're not, if their intention heading into that conversation is to prove themselves right, like you're not going to get anywhere and kind of recognizing that can be a way. Well, to I have to say that I'm going to give them a second chance and I yeah. have little tricks yeah. okay. um, to help, help. Uh, and one might be, uh, uh, to ask about their childhood. Oh. Um, and, and to get them, cause you're trying to get them in, in the, the, uh, a receptive state mm -hmm. and, uh, receptivity, uh, is something that I can 
actually offer mm -hmm. role, role model. Um, uh, I have had conversations with, with rabid uh, uh, extremists. Um, I would only say it's like 20 to 30%, maybe even less, but yeah. I'm an optimist too. <laughs> yeah. And also it's a good learning exercise. You yeah. Know? I'll Absolutely. try it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, the only successes I've had is to get them telling true stories um, about what's important to them. And if I can get them in that place, then we, we can find a place to connect. Uh, yeah. Because because the polarization is like either somebody's rabid about about structure or somebody's rabid about freedom. Currently, that's a, a pretty polarizing paradox right now. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, it's both. So I can, if they're all about freedom, um, I can meet them there mm -hmm. and then lead them to, you know, well, what happens when you have too much freedom? Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes, uh, but, right. but you can, you can feel them tense up when, when I, they realize I'm trying to bring them to the middle. Um, and that's fear and disdain. And that's, you know, from this, um, these misleading stories that, that people are putting out. Okay, we had to pause the podcast to let you in on this opportunity. If you're ready to elevate your brand storytelling, don't miss our training, Tell Better Stories, led by me, a seasoned television journalist and PR professor, and Kyle, an on-air meteorologist and video storytelling expert. This workshop unveils our secrets to craft compelling, personal-driven narratives that resonate with your audience. Learn our distinct approach that puts people first and brands second, leveraging six storytelling elements for maximum impact. Walk away with actionable strategies, tactics, and a clear process to replicate success in any organization. Check out the show notes to learn more about this offer or reach out to homeplacecreative at gmail.com. Do you have any thoughts on, like I've seen a lot of people and it's, it's just an observation that I've made in the past, especially again, I think it's been heightened since the pandemic about people attaching themselves to these larger like monomyths so these larger stories and they start to see their own identity in these stories mm -hmm. and it's sort of I it almost moves them away from their personal experience oh, and right Absolutely. That's yeah could you talk I've been I've just it's an observation of mine that I've found in these conversations with people and I I do have a difficult time getting them even out of but that's that that's not your experience that's I don't under I'm having a hard time or it's just I guess interesting to me as an observation that, that I see that happen a lot in the conversations that I try to have with people again to get to a place the middle as you call it right yeah um <clears throat> did you have a question in there because I I guess it was more just like a <laughs> comment of like I guess the question would be how do you or if you I don't know if you have any tips if if that's happening in a conversation with someone where you really are aiming to find the middle or find a collaborative solution to something okay. and you see that happening so so humans um are craving attention right now and we've automated so much that that it's not the real thing mm -hmm. um to look someone in the eyes and to relax your body and just really be curious about what they have to say can sometimes 
change, you know, uh, where they're at. Um, just trying to think about the last time it happened. Um, you know, uh, psychological silence is something that I was taught back in the nineties by my mentor, Jim Parr. Mm -hmm. And so we would, uh, we would do the 360 degree interviews. We would go, you know, an executive and we would interview 10 people who work with them for them, all that sort of stuff. Okay. And we would transcribe the verbatims. So I don't believe in surveys because mm -hmm. that's oversimplifying. But when, when you can get true anecdotes, mm -hmm. um, and then we would put them in a collection that we would, uh, uh, de-identify anybody who spoke about it but it was an intense interview because mm -hmm. you don't want to talk trash about someone and and of course right. everybody you interview um they've got their own you know things going on sure and so Jim taught us psychological silence which people don't realize how much their facial expressions hmm. can trigger you know so so if I'm talking to somebody and I'm like you know, or, oh yeah. Right. You know, I, I get in trouble for that face all the time. <laughs> um, my husband is like, what? <laughs> so it's, funny. it's amazing how much our facial expressions actually can, uh, change the nature of the conversation. Oh, that's good advice. Yeah. And, and so body language. we learned that as an interview technique, the psychological mm -hmm. silence. Because if, if the person thinks you're judging them for what they're saying, um, they're going to get defensive. Mm -hmm. um, and if, if they think you're pleasing, they're pleasing you, they may just start to cater to what they think you want. Yeah. So you're not getting to the truth of, of whatever's happening there. Yeah. Yeah. T transactional analysis was a big a part of, of my, uh, theory set um and and what it says is that you have three ego states of course we have a thousand but who who cares you you can you can talk from the parent which is you know this business from the adult which is let's just deal with with what's going on or from the child which can be rebellious or playful you know there's there's room for all those ego states but when you have uh uh, a conversation where you're turning into either the parent or the child and the other person, a lot of these, these um, extremist conversations are parent, you know, judging. Um, uh, and, and one of the things that I do when I facilitate groups is I get them into the playful child. Mm -hmm. um, I have people make art I have, uh, um, you know, storytelling is art. Yes. yes. Um, and so, and storytelling is play um, in, in the most serious aspect of what play is for. Uh, play is basically a chance to run scenarios uh, without risking anything real. Um, mm -hmm. And so, so, you know, these narratives allow people to, to sit in a different place um, and, and have a different point of view. So, yeah, I think, I think, um, that's enough about that. 
No, but that's very helpful information because I think, you know, a lot of what I'm hoping that will help listeners in whatever situation or context they're in is really finding that middle ground. And like we've talked about since the outset of the conversation, there are so many, it seems like there are so many outside factors pushing us away from that anymore. And so I really appreciate the advice that you've given in in all respects towards that. Another thing, you know, and I think we're kind of, you mentioned this earlier you talked about how storytelling, how you've worked, you know, with storytellers at, who follow the the older ancient old school yeah. traditions. Is that what you yeah. said? In that? Yeah. School. So, and I, but there, as you said, you know, sto- the term storytelling has been, it depends on who you're talking to, right? If you're talking to somebody in entertainment, they think storytelling is this. If you talk to somebody in marketing, it's sort of a buzzword, if you will. I think it hadn't has been for oh, the past 10 years or so yeah 20 years so could you talk about uh what how can you help people focus or where should they go if they want to focus on more of those old school traditional impacts and uses of stories that's why i wanted to talk about ai pardon me because ai is is you know is very young um and and all it was fed uh for is these templates and storytelling is script. So, and AI are, stands for it. What is AI? Oh, artificial intelligence. Oh yeah. Okay. I didn't know if we were talking about. Thank you for that. Right. No. Yes. Thank yes. You. So, um, a friend of mine is a, a tech genius, mm-hmm. and she likes my books, and uh, she likes AI. Mm-hmm. I hate AI, um, and it it hurt her feelings. Mm-hmm. So, so she's like, I'm going to set you up as a developer on open AI. Um, and let's get some of your ideas into, you know, an, a, a chat assistant or whatever. Uh-huh. Well, um, first of all, AI is basically a mansplaining, uh, system, uh, because it values certainty so highly mm. that, that the, the templates this is how you ended up with the monomyth. James uh, Campbell, and with this is you know best of intentions, thought that if he could just find that one thing that that is the same, that it would provide a great insight. Mm-hmm. And so AI is looking for the answers, um, and business storytelling. Uh, a lot of it is is designed to monetize um your information and so in order to monetize it you have to provide guarantees and now we're back to i um so i got contacted with this facilitation group and i said i have some things that work about 50 to 70 percent of the time if you're Mm -hmm. interested and that tells me who has a collaborative narrative and who doesn't um if you understand that nothing works 100 percent of the time we can work together Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, and so one of the things that I found is the reflection of these definitions of business storytelling, which, which is very, uh, very dependent on the things that you can absolutely predict and also has a tendency to go with the hero story with the, uh, you know, uh, you, you encounter an obstacle and, and you, Mm -hmm. you kill the dragon. Mm -hmm. Well, in a feminine narrative, uh, the dragon has something to teach you. 
dragons, you know, are wise. Um, and so uh, one of the things that, that I've found is that the framework that has been applied to business storytelling um, is a, from a competitive narrative. Mm. And so it's the old school storytelling. And I have on, on my, my shelf, I have, I have, you know, all of these ancient stories. If you want to want some interesting uh, uh, old style folktales, go into Hungarian folktales. They last forever. Yeah. Um, and so one of the things that, that I want to remind people is that the hero's story in its original form started out with the hero leaving and, and coming across three different characters uh, that needed something. So uh, Jack, you know, leaves home. He has a loaf of bread and he meets someone who's starving. And while he needs that loaf of bread, he actually shares it. And then there's a bird that, you know, is, is, is hurt and you, you take care of the bird. And then at the end of the hero story, when, when everything's really dangerous, it's the guy you shared the bread with that turns out to be a wizard that saves your ass, you know? Yeah. And so these old stories have, have, uh, moral lessons. Um, but without storytelling, generosity, um, doesn't get rewarded, uh, without these old stories. And, 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 and so collaborative narratives require trust that in the future, without my ability to control your behavior at all, after things change, you'll still do the right thing. Mm -hmm. That's trust. And that's an irrational, you know, there's, there's no ratio that's going to reinforce that. Mm -hmm. um, and it's one of the reasons I use this 50 to 70% ratio because the engineers are, it's just like for them to even imagine that you're going to do something that's, that's going to fail, you know, 50% of the time, uh, they, they just don't get that. Um, yeah. And so that's one of the, my problems with the way business storytelling has, mm. has, has, has de-ambiguated um, moral lessons uh, and we need to re-ambiguate them. Do you have any thoughts on how to re-ambiguate them, how to move toward, I know you mentioned earlier, like you didn't like the beginning, you know, the advice of beginning, middle and end. Is that part of it? I mean, what can we do to re-ambiguate narratives if we are, if someone listening, maybe is owner of a business or a corporation or well i'm 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 just now working on that um yeah and and right now uh what i am looking at is is educating people about paradox yeah that makes so sense telling those stories about paradox um <laughs> i have another friend thaler um who is who did a ted talk on paradox after after we started talking about it um so so it's got legs Mm -hmm. Um, I really do believe that, that if we were better educated about paradox, um, that, uh, we'd be much more receptive to these stories. One of the, th one of the th things I invented along the way, uh, I use graphics a lot. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, I have to have a flip chart. I've got to draw. I don't like PowerPoint because it, it doesn't appear before the eyes in the same way that me drawing. And also there's just a generosity 
of of watching someone it's kind of like improv watching yeah. someone trying to draw stuff. yeah um and um so I have this this model where uh it's a box and that that represents a room and mm-hmm. so everybody that comes in has their own uh, belief about what the problem is. Mm. So the guy from accounting has, uh, you know, what we need is better, you know, controls. You have the guy from marketing and he comes in is what we need is less controls. And so you end up with these five different belief systems. Uh, and uh, everybody is going to be polite in the beginning. Because they know that that he doesn't see it my way and, and that sort of stuff and they're they're not going to risk well if if it gets intense enough if it, if it's important enough conversation they're going to clash they're going to find the places where where this belief system doesn't fit that belief system so so as I'm drawing this I say that each one of us ha- has to open up our belief system and mm-hmm. take in because we each have a part of the picture mm-hmm. and by sharing our stories then we end up five times as smart as we were when we walked in and um i prep them and i say now the reason why you won't do this is is human beings have a low tolerance for the frustration necessary to understand somebody else's narrative mm-hmm. and we have a bias for action mm. We'll come up with an action plan that nobody's going to, um, uh, you know, adhere to just to get out of the room. Yeah. And so when I draw their attention to the stuff they do that actually contributes to um, either collaborative or a competitive environment, then people reflect in their imaginations and they have a chance to imagine being different this time. Not all the time, just this time. Um, and, um, so I've had some success with that. I love the way that you frame that. And I also love the idea of drawing it out as opposed to, I think that's a, that's a beautiful way to sort of visualize the process, you know, of storytelling and collaboration. I'm trying to activate another part of their brain. Yes. Um, and, and imagination is, 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 has, is wanting right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so in, in, in many ways, storytelling is to take someone on an imagined journey so that they can experience a different point of view. So my definition of story is, is a significant emotional experience narrated so that both of you are reliving it. One of the things that I teach when, with storytelling, people are so concerned about poli- being polished um, that they they don't activate their own imagination, which is you know having TED talks be scripted is one of my my pet peeves, but it does help with time. Mm-hmm. Um, so when so I go to storytelling workshops with traditional tellers. Mm-hmm. It's the cheapest, best. You know you have to have a lot of tolerance because because it's not a professional environment. Mm-hmm. But um, I learned so much. And so I did one with Heather Forrest and Milbury Birch, um, two other names that, that, that you need to, to uh, interview. And one of the exercises was to stand in front of the rest of the group and just imagine your story without 
using words. And um, it's amazing that you can actually see, but it also is just a wonderful exercise uh, that grounds you in the fact that you need to be reliving this story in its visceral reality. Mm -hmm. See, smells, taste, touch here. Um, and when you do that, it creates um, uh, a level of understanding in your listener that this whole polished script, you know, scripted doesn't. Mm -hmm. um, and so, but I, I can't even imagine uh, asking a corporate environment, you know. <laughs> I'm, I, you know, I, I, I tried. <laughs> I mean, I saw a lot of, yeah, you're speaking my language, Annette, I, because I think that as human beings, we know, like we can sniff that out. Like we know when you're not, and that defeats the purpose of what you're trying to do. Oh my God. I read, I read a, a article that, that was talking about being authentic. And in today's world with our celebrity culture and everything like that, they said unhinged is the new authentic. It's like, <laughs> it's like, if, if you're not like out of control, then you must not be, you know, real. Yeah. Which explains a lot of characters out there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It does. Yeah. yeah. I have, I have lots of convert. I feel like I have lots to say about authenticity in general, but yeah, I think that, you know, and you said this earlier though, and I love the example. I, I use Taylor Swift for this example. When I talk about authenticity that you are, and you said this, I think this goes back to like that. There's no beginning, middle and end to a story. Like you're constantly evolving or if changing perspectives or you know, depending on environment and situation and audience, your authentic personality, your voice is going to be very different. And so I just, well, I like now, to take the now, pressure wait a minute. off. I, I'm, I'm actually, I'm going to push back on that. Okay. <clears throat> so one of my pet peeves uh -huh. is analyzing the audience. That's what they teach you to do. Analyze yes, they the do. The, I'm a rhetorician. That's like the first thing they teach you to do. No. Okay. No, Annette, no. tell me why. You need know. to love your audience. Oh, Yeah. And so, um, so analyzing just the term analyze mm -hmm. is you being objective and you, it puts you in a position of either superiority or inferiority. If you're afraid of your audience, oh, yeah. or you think you're smarter than your audience, mm -hmm. that's not where authenticity lives. Not where you're going to be. Right. Yeah. Um, and so, so, uh, one of the things that I, I always do is, is, and I, I'm not terribly Christian, but, but, I, you know, prayer is a ritual that, that has, has its place. And so before I go to work with a group, I pray to be of service to them. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, I, and, and so there's three things I ran across, uh, a long time ago about how, how to be authentic. Mm -hmm. One is, is, is that, that you come from a place of equality, not superiority, mm -hmm. not below, mm -hmm. but equality. Um, one is that you use uh, descriptive language instead of judgmental language. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's show don't tell basically yep. in storytelling. Yep. Um, and then uh, one, the, the last one is that you use provisional language. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that they taught women is that you're supposed to be declarative and you're supposed to you know stand up for yourself and and you know i i expect you know this will happen as opposed to this may happen mm -hmm. and so what i've learned 
is that that's not true. This this whole idea of, of you know, certainty uh, actually shuts people down. But when you invite them uh, to, to consider another point of view, perhaps, um, and and you hold hold this loosely, then it's more inviting for them to come and explore. Mm-hmm. And so I I think you need to fall in love with your audience. One of the things that I do before I uh, speak is I want to talk to at least three or four people who are going to be in the audience. Mm-hmm. And I just ask them to tell me what their problems are mm-hmm. um, and you know, what their delights are. Hmm. Um, and I, I fall in love with them mm-hmm. um, or uh, or. I don't take the job. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's just not a good fit. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good advice. Yeah. That's great. I love that. I think it takes a lot of pressure off too. When you think about Absolutely. it from someone who has to, if you're, if you're giving a presentation or you have to speak or whatever it is to just love your audience and yeah. meet them where they're at. And that, yeah, that's- I get very, very nervous. I don't do big keynotes anymore. It's just mm-hmm. too stressful. I'll throw up the, you know, before oh, I go on yeah. stage, it's just too stressful. But, but I had to learn that in order to calm down enough uh, to do a good job. One yeah. of one of the best compliments I ever got was way back in the nineties um, with my first book. And this guy came up to me, he goes, I, I love your presentation. You're just so unpolished. And I was like, well, thank you. <laughs> Like, okay. But I mean, it was a compliment. Yeah. Really oh was. yeah. Yeah. Um, it was real. And, Maybe. And I've had people too. tell me I need to be more polished. My agent. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, but, but I'm me, I'm happy. Yeah. You're that's, that's incredible. Well, I feel like I could talk to you all day in it, but I do want to respect your time. We have a few wrap up questions. Uh, one, which you already answered, which is the definition of story, how you define storytelling. So I'm not going to ask you that one, but the other ones, uh, the other one is, I have two other ones. The first one is what is your favorite story? Whether that can be, and, and you know, we have a wide definition of story here, but what's your, what's your favorite one? Well, um, of course that changes, but yes. this morning, <laughs> um, I went to see Lucinda Williams last night she's a singer, rock and roll singer, songwriter. She's had mm-hmm. a stroke. She's 71 years old, but she did a retrospective and, um, I I think that that the singer songwriters mm-hmm. that tell stories are totally my favorite. Uh, so last night she uh, she I'm from Louisiana and she's from Louisiana and so she has a uh, drive into Baton Rouge, mm-hmm. um, and it it's the story that allows me to relive um, some of the most meaningful times. I, I John Prine oh, is another good yes. storyteller yeah. and Johnny Cash. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, I can, I can name some of my favorite storytellers and I think Taylor Swift does a good job. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you for that. And then, uh, the next question is what is a piece of advice about storytelling? That's just so good. You, you have to let us know or so bad. You also have to let us know. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. The hero story is so bad. That's what I mean. I, like, I just, I mean, it has its place, but it's been sure. morphed into something that's yeah. abusive. And and if if and, and I go back to the idea that dragons have stories to tell. You know, I love that analogy um, too. Yeah. And and so uh, and and I guess 
the way I get people to find stories is that I have them go back to a significant emotional event hmm. so that they're not using a template. Right. So that they're actually telling something true, mm -hmm. technically true. That's another thing is that, that, that stories oh, are yeah. not true, don't tell. Right. It's, yeah. Unless it's you're, an, unless you're an author or an artist, you know, um, and, and so narrating what happened to you or what you watched in a movie or uh, what you read in a book or what a mentor told you mm -hmm. narrating that um, in order to recreate the emotion is going to create your best story. Mm -hmm. Don't worry too much about, you know, I mean, the character development, all that stuff that that's important, but if you don't have a significant emotional experience to narrate, then you don't have a story. Mm -hmm. Um, and so AI, you know, creates stories, mm -hmm. um, and, and to a certain extent it has, it has learned what heartstrings to tug. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think that takes you further and further away from understanding what storytelling really is. Do you think that's because it, it's omitting the human to human connection? it's a meeting the mess mm -hmm. uh the subjectivity and so one of the one of the things that that i've preached for a long time is that you can have an objectively great decision quality decision is you're 100 right and if nobody likes it it ain't gonna happen right and so the objective is half the job the subjective is the other half of the job mm -hmm. and that has to do with you know so many things um but uh it, and it definitely has to do with telling the story of how you came to this perfect solution. Um, people need need to 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 struggle with uh, the tensions in there along with you before they understand the compromises you had to make mm -hmm. to take one course of action and not another. That's a beautiful way to put it. Thank you, Annette. Well, thank you so much for your time today. What this a joy. Is, I, a I know. I, I'm just so grateful for the opportunity to have this conversation with you. We're so glad you've listened to this podcast episode. If you liked it, would you mind doing us a favor? Share this episode with someone who would be interested in the topic too. We're on a mission to help everyone become a better storyteller. And don't forget to subscribe to the show to get updated every time we release a new episode. Each and every episode is produced, hosted, and edited by us, Megan Kyle Adams at Home Place Creative. Happy storytelling.